Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Corbin Barthel, Internet Policy Counsel at Tech Freedom. I'm so happy to be joined today by Sheena Chestnut Greitens. She is an associate professor at the University of Texas's Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs. She's also a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, among many other impressive positions, credentials, and accolades. I will not run through them now uh, in the interest of time, but you can look her up. Um, she has a professional site and of course a personal site that's worth checking out. She's an expert on East Asia, American national security, and authoritarian politics and foreign policy. Um, again, check out her sites, follow her on Twitter. She's actually great on the China Beat. I've really enjoyed following her, her feed. It's very insightful uh, for, for a non-expert like me. I'm very excited to have you on, Sheena. Welcome. Thanks, so glad to be with you today. So we're gonna be talking about China and tech. Um, you have such a wide, range of expertise here. Um, so again, I'm just so glad to have you on, but let's first narrow down in on, on what sort of everybody uh, talks about most, at least in my experience in talking about China and tech these days, which is China's social credit system. Um, as a non-expert, I'm really unclear on how far along that system is, uh, how much it's actually implemented on the ground if you're an average citizen in China. Can you tell us uh, what we know about that? Yeah, sure. The social credit system is something that has gotten increasing attention over the last couple of years in the United States and around the world. And it's a system for rating people's behavior. And the framing that, that the CCP and the, the Chinese party state provide is that it's, it's supposed to allow citizens to trust each other better um, by providing some sort of measure of the reliability of, of their behavior. Um, there are all sorts of issues with that that I'm sure we'll get to in a moment, but one of the things that's important to know um, about this is that some of what you hear about China's social credit system is in fact much more aspirational than reality, and so figuring out how far along implementation is is a really important question. In this case, there's actually not just one social credit system that's been developed. There's a patchwork of different systems. Some of them were semi-private in that they were developed by corporations or companies. Some of them are run by uh, sort of local government actors. Um, but the Chinese political system has also indicated that it wants to try to merge these into a more unified social credit system. Um, and scale it up to be nationwide and inclusive of all of China's, you know, almost 1.4 billion people. Um, so, so that's, you know, this is, they're in the process of trying to do that scaling and melding this patchwork of systems into one more unified, coherent system. What I think is, is really important to understand about the social credit system actually also is that it's one of a couple of different efforts to use tech and use data to predict and control citizen behavior. Um, and so I've done a lot of work, um, not just on the social credit system, but on another one of these efforts, something called community grid management, which takes 
information from frontline bureaucrats, people involved in welfare politics, people who prepare potholes on the street and puts them into a grid that is organized geographically, divides cities up into boxes, and each grid has a team of people who are responsible for fixing governance problems, but also maintaining political order, meaning control by the CCP in that specific grid. Um, and that's another case where it started out as kind of experimental. China has this long history of sort of saying, hey, here's the problem, local governments go experiment, figure out the best way to solve it, and then scaling up the approaches that work the best. But because it does that local experimentation, whether it's social credit or community grid management, you end up with a patchwork of different systems that sometimes don't talk well to each other and that all have different sources of data in different formats that then have to be reconciled and integrated. Um, and so one of the things that I always try to emphasize when we talk about Chinese tech and all of these data projects for social control is that it's really important not just to look at what the state is or the party state is collecting, what data and information is being collected, but what happens on the back end. How is that data actually integrated so that these different sources of data talk to each other? And what exactly then does the party state do with that information? Who makes decisions about how to, how to use it? Is it AI? Is it the local police? Um, you know, who controls, manages, and ultimately deploys the data um, in this project of social order, which is kind of the, you know, the, the fundamental heart, I think, of, of what the CCP is trying to do in ruling China. Um, so, so that's, you know, that's where, how I would describe the evolution of the system and, and where I think it's likely headed in the next year or two. That is, that's such a different, um, when you actually get into the nuts and bolts, it's, it's so much more messy than what I sometimes see where, as again, as a non-expert outsider, I, you see the diagram where, oh, you, uh, you litter and you lose points or you um, praise the party online and you gain points. And, and it, it, there's this impression that it is already this um, 1984 big brother system. And it sounds like the party is actually currently in a struggle to integrate. I mean, is that still the ultimate goal though? And obviously that's not how they're going to depict it. I mean, it does, again, it's a ginormous population. So this is, you're gonna to have to generalize in saying this, but does the average citizen see this very much in the, the local good governance way that you described it? Or are there signs to us outsiders that there's a lot of pushback and any impression on the inside that this is dystopian? You know, one of the things that the Chinese political system has been really good at doing is taking advantage of people's concerns and worries about the amount of social dislocation that China's gone through since it embarked on its reform and opening process. And so one of the things that you have to think about is that roughly within a generation, China went from a system where people had a residence um, designation called a huko that attached them to a particular place. And when Deng Xiaoping started reforming the Chinese economy and opening it up, we saw one of the largest migrations in human history. Um, people moving all, all sorts of different places and to, in order to work and pursue you know, the activities that, that generated China's economic growth. Um, but what that did was really sort of um, upend the Maoist institutions that, had, that the Chinese Communist Party had used to keep control. Um, and 
so, you know, both citizens and the party state are, are grappling with that dislocation, migration, um, and kind of trying to figure out how, how you maintain order. Um, and so a lot of, of the CCP's projects are trying to figure out how to use tech and how to use new mechanisms um, to monitor and keep track of the population in the face of this, this large migration and sort of reorganization of the Chinese economy that we've seen. I want to be really clear, the, there are coercive elements to the social credit system. And there are cases where there have been pushback and where the system has been used to penalize and punish people, um, probably unfairly. One of the things that's really, really interesting and troubling about the way China uses data and the way um, that it talks about wanting to use AI and algorithms in for social control in the future is that this is a system that has a pretty high tolerance for false positives. Um, that's what we're seeing in Xinjiang. That's what we've seen in, in some other contexts in China. Um, and so, you know, this is a system that would rather punish somebody unfairly, um, sort of have a false positive than it would have a false negative and miss somebody who might be threatening to the party state. Um, and so there's definitely that, that punitive element, but because of this underlying way that the CCP has framed the project, um, I do think that opinions on the social credit system are a little bit more mixed inside of China. When you look at survey data, um, there, there's at least a chunk of the population that is willing to give the system um, you know, a kind of a try. Um, but I think as it becomes clearer and clearer that you're going to get these false positives, um, and unless the state can keep those to a real minimum, um, which it's not clear that they're going to be able to, um, then I think you, we, you know, we may not have seen the real pushback on those systems yet. We've seen one of the first data privacy lawsuits in China just in the last three or four years. And that was against a, a company collecting data. Um, not, it did not challenge government, government surveillance um, or the party state surveillance apparatus. Um, but, you know, there is a lag sometimes before you get um, bottom up pushback in China. Um, and so, I, you know, we've seen a little bit, but I'm not sure that we've seen it because the system isn't fully up and running at the national level yet. And... I kind of feel like implicitly when we have these conversations, um, when I hear you say all these things, and maybe you'll correct me on this, but we're talking about what Han Chinese see. And when we talk about how uh, the Chinese government is approaching minority populations, we tend to talk about the Uyghurs a lot, rightfully so, but there are other minority populations, Mongols, a, a lot. I mean, it's a, actually a, a more diverse country than I think a lot of people realize. Is what the CCP is currently doing to those populations to try and assert control best considered another prong of the social social credit system? As you said, it's kind of a patchwork or, or is that kind of something else entirely? Is that something that we should think of as a separate category of uh, social oppression? I think the, the way I think about it personally, and I'll, I'll say I, I entirely agree with you about the, the diversity within China. Um, my parents visited me in China about 10 years ago when I was uh, when I was there. And um, and we visited a number of places around uh, around China. And at the end of the trip, both of them said that one of the things they were most struck by was just how diverse China is geographically, culturally, um, you know, kind of at a bunch of different levels. Um, I think, you know, the difference that we see 
is that, um, you know, Han Chinese make up about 90% of China's population, but there are these concentrated geographic areas that are ethnic autonomous regions or prefectures. Um, and so um, where, where minority populations are much more concentrated. Um, and so what's What's interesting about that is that you can have some of the same tools applied, community grid management, social credit, um, you know, some of the use of these predictive policing tools that, that we're seeing um, experiments with as well. Um, but the, the sort of baseline level of concern is much higher in an area like Xinjiang, in a region like Xinjiang, um, where the, by the party's own estimates um, and Chinese scholars estimates, um, you know, 10 to, tw I'm sorry, 20 to 30% of the Uyghur population has been, to use their, their phrase, which is really problematic, infected with the virus of religious extremism. Now, that 20 to 30%, if you look at, there's a list of about 90 indicators that they use, includes a whole lot of stuff that we, looking at it, would consider normal religious and cultural practice. But the point is that if your threshold is, um, we're looking to police or we're looking for about 20 to 30% of the population um, who needs pretty intensive monitoring control and in, in this case detention and re-education versus in some cases in the urban east it's it, you know it's a much lower number the fraction of the population that's considered potentially problematic is probably in single digits um, and so again that 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 really changes kind of what the risk tolerance of the, the system is. So you see this, some of the same tech tools um, applied to, to places like Xinjiang, um, but they're used to identify a much broader set of the population and, um, and, and the targeting is sort of less assigning a social credit score in particular. Um, it, may, it may, the stakes may not just be you can't buy a plane ticket or you can't buy a train ticket to go home and see your family. Um, it may be, well, actually we're going to put you in a re-education facility for a year and you won't see your family or be able to talk to them for that time. Um, so the stakes I think are potentially much higher and the, the section of the population that's being targeted is a lot broader. Um, even if it's the same tools, they can produce very, very different results because the underlying political assumptions are so different on the CCP's part. So that's such a, a broad range of uses that this technology can be used for, which is a nice segue into the next thing I'm interested in, which is the exportation of this kind of technology. Um, who, who is China exporting this technology to? And I should add for listeners, I mean, I think you're one of the, the top experts on this area in the country. So thank you for giving us your insights on this. You know, who is China exporting this technology to and what are they using it for? And what's China's goal? Uh, are they, you know, they've got stuff to sell, so they sell it and that's a source of revenue or whatever? Or is this more like uh, them exporting their ideological system, thinking that social credit is good for them if it's used abroad as it's used at home? Those are all great questions. I mean, I've been tracking this for the last couple of years. Um, and uh and so the short answer is that China is exporting a wide range of surveillance and social control tech products, um, ranging from hardware, right, facial recognition enabled cameras to these data integration platforms that um, Huawei, for example, calls them safe city solutions. Um, that back end platform that I was talking about that's designed to take all of these different 
inputs, whether they're government records or license plate scanners or facial recognition, CCTV cameras, um, and match all of that data in order to try to accomplish certain goals for policing and public security. Um, so China's selling kind of that whole, and Chinese companies are, are selling that whole range of, of products. Um, they're selling things on almost every continent. Um, they're selling them to democracies and non-democracies, which I think is, raises some really interesting policy questions. Um, you know, some of this hardware has ended up, for example, at, at military bases in the United States. I know there was a debate about, um, I believe it was Hikvision cameras at Fort Leonard Wood in Missouri, where I was until until the middle of last year. Um, and and so, um, you know, these exports really span the, the global political spectrum. Um, but the other thing that's important to know is that um, China is exporting in a lot of cases to subnational governments, um, city governments, state governments, provincial governors or provincial police departments in Latin America. Um, so often these procurement or export decisions aren't being made or shaped by the folks who talk about tech policy at the national level or folks who talk about national security concerns. They're a very, very different set of actors who have you know, electoral timelines that are a little bit different, um, incentives to focus on growth and in attracting investment and lowering the crime rate. And, um, and, so, and often just don't have the same level of familiarity with some of the foreign policy or national security concerns about Chinese technology. Um, so I think, I think that poses a really interesting set of challenges for American policymakers. Um, and you know, it's, it's something that I think the US has been uh, a step behind on in terms of collecting information and trying to get a handle on this problem. Um, so you know, my personal hope is that um, this is something that the U.S. government moves on pretty quickly in the near future to, to just um, actually try to come up with a coherent strategy um, for, for dealing with some of these exports. Well, I, I'd really like to hear you expand on that, because one thing when I, I look at this um, exportation of tech uh, being sitting in my own shoes as an American, I have my own views about privacy and liberty and it's always a balance to adhere to your own views and values while also trying to step into other people's shoes and really understand that other cultures don't see things the way we do necessarily. And that the US view on privacy is not necessarily the developed world's view, never mind the global view. And that some of these countries are accepting this technology uh, very gladly. And, and uh, some of our critiques of it are just going to um, not resonate with them. So as we have a multi-level problem uh, or a, a multi-level challenge of this technology going to different levels of government and different kinds of government, um, you say we need a strategy. Uh, you know, here comes the really hard question. What do you think that should look like? How do we convince very different cultures to maybe see things a little more our way? Yeah, um, that's going to be a really tricky challenge for, in this case, you know, now that we're looking at, at the incoming Biden administration, I think it's going to be a really, really tricky challenge um, for U.S. policymakers, uh, in part because there is a range of global opinions on this. Um, but I, I think I think there's room to, um, to to have serious conversations about the challenges that, that Chinese technology poses. Um, and it, as it relates to surveillance policy, uh, surveillance technology, I think there are three main issues. Um, one is just the issue of data privacy and data security. 
it's not clear that some of the folks negotiating, especially the early um, contracts to purchase this technology, um, you know, what provisions were included on who owned the data, where it was stored, um, who could access it, whether or not, um, you know, Chinese companies had access to it for technical consulting or troubleshooting purposes. Um, and around the time that that export of this technology took off, you had a real sea change in the environment in China with a national intelligence law that uh, now requires Chinese companies to provide data to the state and the public security apparatus if they're requested to do so. Um, the law just doesn't allow a lot of wiggle room. And so the data storage and data localization provisions in these contracts are private. We just don't know how a lot of them are structured, um, but there is a real concern about data security. Um, I think this, you know, the second concern has to do with um, issues of democracy and human rights. Um, like I said, there isn't a very strong relationship between the level of democracy in a country and whether or not they adopt these systems. We've seen, for example, um, some of these systems adopted in, in France or in Germany, um, as well as in, you know, democracies in, in Latin America, um, as well as also, you know, autocracies. Um, or places where the systems have clearly been used, not just for public safety, but to repress political opposition. Um, and so the question is, even if both democracies and non-democracies adopt this technology, it could still lead to a corrosion of, dem of democratic freedoms, human rights, civil liberties. Um, and, and I think that concern is worth taking quite seriously, especially in an age when there has been, you know, some push to use surveillance technology for public health, and, you know, in a public health crisis. And you know, one of the things that that I um, that I've been concerned about is that measures that are adopted in a crisis can be difficult to walk back later, because um, you're always going to find a reason why you could potentially, um, you know, protect or, or or help people by keeping some of these technologies in place. And so it's difficult um, to 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 achieve that rollback, even if it's appropriate. Um, but I think, and then, then I think there's a third issue, which is the role that tech plays in a, the very specific US-China strategic competition. And I think the US has not um, always done the best job of being clear about these three different risks, the data privacy and security, human rights and repression, and then the role that tech plays in the US-China relationship. Um, and those are three different challenges. And I actually think we're, the United States would be much more convincing if we talked more about the first two. And ironically, that actually means talking a little bit less about China and more about why some of these countries want the technology in, a, in the first place. And it means, I think, in some cases being um, you know, open to listening and not leading with our own judgments. Um, because the reality is that there are governors, there are mayors who look at their cities, they have a serious homicide or violent crime problem, they feel like they need to get that down just because it's their job for the, the, the people who elected them and the residents of the city. They also need to do it to attract tourism, investment, drive economic growth. These are goals that every elected official has and they are legitimate goals. Um, and like I said, in a lot of cases, it's just somebody, um, then you have a company that says, hey, we've got a solution. We can fix this for you. Look, we've done it in these three other, you know, kind of case study uh, flagship cases that we can give you. Um, and, um, and also our, you know, China's development assistance will, will subsidize the cost of this project, right? That's, if there's not a compelling alternative, which I don't, I don't think the United States and other democracies, I don't think we've provided a compelling alternative. Um, it, that's a pretty hard deal to turn down. 
Um, and I think we need to be realistic that, that people are making these decisions for reasons that from their standpoint make a lot of sense. Um, they also come with huge long-term risks, um, but I think we're gonna probably have a more productive conversation about how to manage those risks if we start by understanding that there are real reasons why this technology is appealing in the first place. Um, and I think, you know, just, so I've written a paper um, that uh, that's on my um, website through a project at the University of Pennsylvania, where I talk about about a seven point strategy um, that I think the United States should adopt for dealing with the spread of Chinese surveillance technology. And the other point that I make is there are very few cases, even when there's been pushback on Chinese surveillance tech, um, that there are very few cases where that's led to the complete jettisoning of a Chinese system. Sometimes that's happened, but not always. Um, more likely what it is is that technical and legal safeguards get put in place to protect data privacy, to uh, heighten data security, and to try to put firewalls around how the technology can be used so it doesn't corrode democracy. Um, and so I think the United States needs to focus a lot more on that second level where complete de-adoption of Chinese tech is just not realistic for a whole range of reasons. Then the question is, what, what's our fallback plan? And I don't think we've had one yet, um, but my sense is that that's where U.S. policy needs to move pretty quickly to try to ensure that, you know, in the cases where this technology might be here to stay, that we limit the effect on American and global um, interests and try to make sure that it's not used in, in damaging ways wherever possible. That sort of brings a blunt question to my mind, because if the if the solution, if, if, if there are just a lot of governments that this is what's going to happen and we are not going to convince people not to use the tech is a successful outcome that american firms succeed in this sphere and i don't I, I, palantir comes to mind but if, if american companies were selling this i'm sure a lot of people would still be very unhappy in our country uh but is that a least bad solution well, I think it depends on, you know, exactly what the technology is used for. And I think that there should be some sense of, of corporate social responsibility on who this technology gets sold to. And there should probably be, you know, um, the U.S. has a, a legal infrastructure to, to help companies make those decisions. Um, but I think there... Um, one of the United States advantages is probably in being able to sell technology that has some of these techno um, technical um, safeguards. And I think the United States could also be doing a lot at the government level and at the sort of the level of civil society to be talking to countries and saying, hey, look, you know, we get it. You're going to adopt this technology, but here's what you need to look for. Um, you might want to consider the following alternative suppliers. The trouble is right now, um, it's hard to come up with a, a good cost competitive list. Um, and there are some cases that you, there are some cases and places where the United States just shouldn't sell this technology, right? We sh I don't believe that we should sell technology um, that will enable stronger, more coercive policing to authoritarian governments. Um, that's not where I would where I would come down. Um, but but in these cases where there are mayors who have public safety concerns, um, I actually think it would be really helpful for the United States and its partners to come up with, you know, our sense of what is a democracy compatible alternative. What are the techni technical uh, features of a democracy compatible alternative and what's the legal and regulatory framework that needs to go along with that, because this is a two part solution. 
Um, and so, you know, I think the United States could do a much better job articulating here's, you know, a competitive alternative that doesn't come with these downsides on data security, doesn't come with these downsides in terms of loss of privacy, doesn't come with these downsides in terms of corroding democracy. Here's a safer, good alternative to accomplish the legitimate ends um, for which this technology is being used in some cases uh, around the world. And I think what we need to do is figure out how to separate those cases um, and not uh, you know, figure out how to come up with a, a much more multi-layered and, and nuanced solution rather than this is always bad and it should never happen. Um, the, the train's kind of left the station on that. So we, we need to come up with a, a much more realistic set of alternatives, I think. Well, Professor Greitens, we are already up against our, our time a bit. I just, I wish I could spin out. We could talk for so long on, on so many of these topics. Um, and we've sort of, I guess we're coming full circle here because we've, we've talked about social credit system within China, gone to China's periphery uh, provinces to export. And now I'd like to come home uh, with what's I, I, probably my last question. Here we are in the United States. You've said that China is, uh, selling technology and sort of having influence at multiple levels of government in on many different continents. Um, I don't want to make it sound like they're, they, you know, um, I don't want to oversell the effectiveness of their strategy, but it's clearly a very, it's a multi-pronged strategy with a lot of nuance to it. Um, what does that mean in the United States right now? Um, is that something that's going on here? Does China have a large amount of influence at uh, sub-national levels of government here? Um, and actually one thing I, I was probably the single question I'm most curious about. So you're a prominent expert on China. Um, and have you seen efforts either blatant and explicit or, or just you suspected it, it was subtle or indirect uh, to influence your views from the CCP? Yeah, so first of all, I think this is a really important question about, you know, how we should view things at home. And I think it's really important to remember that there are principles that govern how democracies deal with, for example, the COVID-19 pandemic and how technology should and shouldn't be used to help make people safer in a crisis. And we've seen that, um, you know, there are democratic US allies who've come up with, um, you know, good models for, uh, for some of this. Generally, the three principles that I think we need to keep in mind are that the use of of technology to, to solve problems, you know, like, so for example, health surveillance, which is something we've all, you know, been thinking and talking a lot about in 2020 and into 2021, um, needs to be really proportional um, and only what's strictly necessary needs to be limited in both time and scope in terms of what data is collected and how it's used, um, and then really needs to be subject to democratic accountability. And so part of what I think is really important about a podcast like this is educating citizens on, um, you know, how this stuff works, what the trade-offs are so that we as a citizenry can actually talk about and decide, you know, how to use technology in a way that's compatible with, with our democracy and with human freedom. Um, in terms of, of the, you know, CCP efforts to, to influence um, American leaders, whether that's government or public opinion, um, that's definitely uh is something that the CCP emphasizes strongly. You'll hear references to United Front work, which is you know people outside the CCP who might nonetheless be acceptable partners for advancing CCP goals. And that's a term that goes back, way, way back to the early days of the, the Chinese Communist Party. Um, China is always 
looking both within China and abroad for non-party partners um, who can help move forward pieces of the, the CCP agenda. Um, and so, you know, you'll see some of these, these efforts um, coming out of consulates and um, cultural associations, in some cases, student associations. So, I, you know, part of my work focuses on how to um, you know, how universities should think about the various pieces of their interaction with China to make sure that we hold the line on academic freedom. That's particularly important in an age where a lot of our teaching is now virtual and therefore can potentially be, be monitored um, online. Um, and, uh, and, and we also see efforts, for example, there was a think tank in China that ranked all 50 United States governors um, about two, three years ago, according to whether or not they were friendly toward China, whether they, their, their policies were problematic or whether they were kind of unknown or, or uncertain. Um, and so, yeah, sure, China spends a lot of time trying to figure out you know, how to use the United States political system to shift policies in directions that are more favorable to China. No question that that, that happens. And the use of subnational diplomacy um, is a big piece of that that I don't think we pay quite enough attention to. Um, in terms of, to, so to, to, to answer your last question about you know, what my experience has been, um, I engage a lot with people in the Chinese government, um, Chinese scholars, folks at, at think tanks who have ties to the government. Um, and of course they try to persuade uh, me that their, their policies are, are good or correct and that the United States should adjust its course in X or Y way. Um, you know, generally in those conversations, um, I know who I'm dealing with. Um, and I know what arguments I'm going to get, and I feel pretty comfortable uh, pushing back and expressing directly where I think Chinese policy is unconstructive um, uh, and, and not in China's interest. There are more than a few times where um, I've said, "Look, if I was advising Beijing, I would I would do things a whole I would do things really really differently." Um, it, so, yeah, I, you know, there there's there have been. Um, there have definitely been efforts to persuade uh, or shape how I, I view some of these issues. Um, it's part of my job is to understand how China um, and various parts of the Chinese political system, which is not a monolith, um, although it is the party does try to really be a disciplined entity, there's still a diversity of views and some debate within that, that system. Um, and so um, you know, part of my job is to listen to those views um, with a critical ear, to engage critically, and to have a, a, as candid a dialogue as, as possible. Um, but that does mean, in my case, that yeah, sometimes I, I listen to people try to persuade me um, of views that I'm ultimately often unpersuaded by. Um, that's, I think, part of uh, the job of, of somebody in my shoes is to try to understand what China um, says its goals are, to look critically at whether the behavior matches that, um, and also to still say, look, okay, fine, you, you may have a logic for doing what you're doing, but that doesn't mean that I think this is a good idea, and here's why. Um, and so I, I um, you know, you have to be careful about which conversations are appropriate, um, but in some cases, I welcome the dialogue because it's a good chance to say, hey, I don't think this is a constructive thing to be doing and let's let's talk about that. Um, I think that it's important for the United States to send those messages uh, in a whole variety of forums. Well, Professor, thank you 
so much for your time. I think that last answer and, and the whole, this whole time, you know, it, it helps me, um, for those of us who only watch these things, um, casually as, as non-experts, um, it's easy to start to think that another country has one position, even a one party state though, there are competing interests and things can be fractured and they can be hard to follow. And you've really helped me get insight on, um, sort of the, the different faucets of these issues. And, um, so thank you so much. I know you've got to run. You've, you've already been very generous with your time. Um, it's been wonderful to have you. I am Corbin Barthold, Internet Policy Counsel at Tech Freedom. This has been the Tech Policy Podcast, and we'll see you next time. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan, nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.